0: Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: Wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're in Luke 21, so turn there, and as we do, we're going to put up this affirmation. It comes from the very end of the book of Luke that we're moving toward. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Oh my. Think about John 2 where Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. And John said this he said about his body. John 1 says that he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. The glorious God, the holy God. Uh, came into time and he walked among them and he had proven already by this point in Luke 21 that he was the Messiah, he was the Savior of the world and they needed to turn to him. You know the story is told of a young girl she was learning geography in school and her dad was reading a magazine there at home when he realized he was looking at a picture of the world in his magazine so he tore it out And then he tore it into a few pieces because he was a good dad trying to help in the instruction of his daughter there. So he gave it to his daughter and said, honey, I know you've been studying geography. Take this picture and put it back together for me. And the dad thought to himself, well, that'll keep her busy for a while. And so she began to work. But to his surprise, the daughter came back faster than he thought she would. And he said, honey, I didn't know you knew geography so well. And she said, daddy, I'm not sure that I do. But the other side of that paper had a picture of Jesus on it. And when I got the picture of Jesus put together, the world was put together also. Now here at the tabernacle, we believe that we're not only to lead people to Jesus so their eternal destiny changes from going to hell because they're under the wrath of God and do the judgment their sins, but that If they turn to Christ, they will now have the wrath for their sins put on Jesus and what He did on the cross, which means they'll be saved by God's grace through their faith in Jesus. We believe in that message. We proclaim it, that forgiveness of, of sins is to be proclaimed in His name throughout the nations. But we also believe in speaking and acting in ways that change the world. Our responsibility is to be salt and light. But we also know from the Bible that the world has problems that aren't going to be fixed until Jesus fulfills his promise to reign physically from Jerusalem. And praise the Lord it's a certainty that that day will come. But until then the world's gonna have problems in increasing degrees culminating with what the scriptures speak of of a seven-year tribulation period before Jesus Christ returns to earth. Now in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 In Mark chapter 13, in our chapter for today, Luke 21, the Bible records what's called Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and that's because it was given from the Mount of Olives. And that message, this chapter, covers three things. The state of the world during the present age, the age we live in now, the time between Christ's two comings, the destruction of Jerusalem, and conditions that are going to prevail during that coming seven-year time of trouble or tribulation. And uh, the, so Jesus describes this time. He leaves it later for the apostles to describe what church means to believers that turn to Christ from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds both during this church age. He leaves it to the apostles to flesh out what it means to live together as Christians in churches and to describe the rapture of the church because of the prophets in the Old Testament. They were writing as Jews to Jews. the reality that involved Israel at the end of the world, and that's the flow Jesus takes to and left the rapture of the church for his apostles later to explain. So it's going to take us two Sunday mornings to go through this chapter. Today we're going to go through verse 24 from verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see... The days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimonies troubles turn into testimony time therefore settle it on you in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer for i will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The stones have been rolled away. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time of worship we've had and testimony. And God, it is just a sweet time to be in your house, Lord. We get glimpses of glory as we hear what you're doing in the saints' lives, God, and around the world. Lord, I thank you that you're in complete control. You are sovereign. You're moving history toward your ends, and nothing can keep that from happening, God. You do allow sinful choices to have consequences, God, and we shudder to think about How this world is so filled with sin's awful consequences, God, going all the way back to Adam and Eve's original sin and how that made a situation arise where people are born to die until they're born again to live and how the creation itself groans and groans and groans waiting for the redemption to come, the perfect time in the future where you'll restore all things and reign on earth, God. We thank you that your plan does involve a restoration of that which has been lost thank you for how in Revelation 20 21 and 22 we see regained what was lost in the Garden of Eden and your final plan is to dwell on a new earth with people in a perfect environment God your presence is everything Lord and we thank you for it God we don't take it for granted we want you to make this place thick with your presence We want your glory to fall. We thank you that it's a reality that when you dwell physically with people later on, the glory will be thick, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for the glimpses of that glory you give now, Lord God. Thank you for telling us a a sketch in sketch form what is to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, to understand uh, Luke's gospel in the Olivet Discourse and what Jesus says with Matthew and Mark's gospel and the differences there, there's two things we want to know before we explain the text. First is that Luke at 31 verses includes less of this sermon than Matthew with his 96 verses and Mark with his 37 verses. Second, Luke wrote as a Gentile, so there's Jews and then there's non-Jews or Gentiles. Luke wrote as a Gentile for a more Gentile audience. As far as we know, Luke was the only Gentile author of the entire Bible, which is very interesting. He leaves out several of the key Jewish statements that Matthew and Mark include that Jesus said in this sermon. You say, Danny, how do we know Luke was a Gentile? Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 to 14, you may want to look at that later. After listing several of his co-workers in verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul says, These are my only fellow workers of the circumcision. These are my only... Uh, in other words these guys are Jews. Then he lists several Gentile co-workers including Luke the beloved physician and that's how we know that Dr. Luke uh, was um, a Gentile not a Jew. So Luke the Gentile doesn't add Jesus' multiple references to the elect and in the context elect means the Jewish nation there and specific references to the abomination of desolation spoken of in the book of Daniel. So the Olivet Discourse, the sermon that Jesus gave, like other portions of the prophetic scriptures, gave a double reference to the destruction of the temple coming in 70 AD and the one later during the time of tribulation under the Antichrist. Luke focuses more in on that 70 AD and the ramifications for the people. Matthew and Mark focus more on the end times, although they both include both. So if you miss those basic things, you're going to miss a lot about the sermon. Now, remember where we were a couple weeks ago? I love how the last couple weeks have unfolded. A couple weeks ago, we talked from Luke 21 about how impressed Jesus was, not by the uh, big, rich gifts he saw being given, which apparently he said those were leftover gifts, but he was impressed with the gift that a widow had given when she had put in all she had. She had really sacrificed to give her gift, and Jesus was impressed with her. And so that's where we left off a couple weeks ago. And then last week we got to hear from Daniel Ritchie who gave an amazing testimony of uh, God's goodness and what an overcomer we saw in our midst. That's another thing I like about going to this March for Life. There will be three or four more testimonies like that of overcomers uh, that uh, could have easily been aborted but were not and have had wonderful lives thanks to God's intervention. So... One through four, he's impressed with this lady's gift, and that leads us to verses five through seven where the disciples' questions leads to Jesus' Olivet Discourse. The disciples couldn't help themselves. They saw the temple complex, and they said, this thing is magnificent. And they looked at not only the incredible complex and the gold things, but the donations and all the different things. And it was a far cry from how God's plan had first unfolded in the days of the tabernacle. In Exodus, we read about the tabernacle, and it was just the Holy uh, the holy place the, was only 45 feet long by 15 feet wide, and it was inside a courtyard that was 150 feet long and 75 feet long. So, if you take a football field and put it in half, and then take half of that half, the court of the whole tabernacle was half of a half of a football field, or a fourth of a football field, and the holy, uh, holy part of it. Um, would, the the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies, those two parts of it, would have been about the size of a soccer six-yard box or something like that, you know. So that was the comparison there. Now, um, interestingly, when Abraham sacrificed, was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, that happened on Mount Moriah. You know that, right? And when later the temple was built in the days of Solomon, we're told in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that the tabernacle was built on Moriah, or the temple was built on Moriah there. So the holy ark of the covenant that represented God's presence and glory, it had been put inside the tabernacle. It went around with Israel portably. when they, It was a portable thing that could move with them. And when it was first commissioned and consecrated, the glory of God fell. It was so thick Moses and the priests couldn't get in. And then later, David had the heart to build a temple for the Lord, and that had happened, and Solomon built it. It was absolutely beautiful. And once again, after Solomon, David's son built the temple in fulfilling the wishes of his father, and God had condescended to let that happen, even though nothing could hold God, but he was going to be in there so they could come and worship him and sense his presence. The same thing happened when the tabernacle was commissioned, right? The glory of God fell, and it was so thick the priests couldn't get in to the tab- the temple part of it when that happened for a little bit and God's presence was always there his glory was thick there at first but we read over and over again of the idolatry of the old testament peoples and how they would turn from worshiping Yahweh to idols and God had promised he would judge them In the days when the tabernacle had its first difficulties, God would say, you're in idolatry, I'm going to pull back a little bit. And when they lost the ark in the days of the tabernacle, uh, it was called Ichabod, the glory has departed. Ichabod Crane, the glory has departed. And in Ezekiel 11, we read that before the temple fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC, a few years before that, God's glory, Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory leaving the place of the ark, leaving out of the entire holy place, leaving the courtyard, leaving Jerusalem. And a few years later, without the defense of the glory of God steeped in their idolatry, the Babylonians were able to come and Nebuchadnezzar's people destroyed the temple and it was completely gone. Well, in 20 BC, Herod the Great began, uh, I'm sorry, Zerubbabel, We miss Zerubbabel. (laughs) Seventy years later, Israel was able to go back and build the temple again. So that would be the second temple. Tabernacle, first temple, second temple. Zerubbabel was able to build the temple. But the older people that were there were crying because it was so far from what Solomon's magnificent temple had been. And you know what we don't read of there? We don't read of a moment of the glory falling like it happened when the tabernacle was consecrated when the temple was consecrated and the reason was is because when Nebuchadnezzar's folks had sacked the temple the time of the Gentiles had begun and it would take the Messiah's presence to one day bring the glory the way the glory was supposed to be there and so Zerubbabel had rebuilt the temple but then later in the days of Herod the great 20 BC he started building up the temple and its complex it wouldn't even be complete until 64 AD and for those keeping track that's 30 years after Christ was uh, crucified buried, rose again, ascended to heaven." And so some of that timetable for you. What Herod did was, he started by tearing down the temple that Zerubbabel had built and immediately started rebuilding because he wanted everything to be opulent and glorious. He filled in three surrounding valleys to support the massive retaining walls. The western retaining wall is the famous Wailing Wall that Jews still go to and pray. For the temple to be rebuilt and the Messiah to come. And Herod's people just kept on building. They built and they built and they built. The complex was 1,500 feet on the west, 1,000 feet on the north, five football fields by three football fields, right? So the courtyard originally of the tabernacle was just a half of a half of a football field. This was five football fields by three football fields and surrounded with opulent beauty and decorations. It had become twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens, which was one of the wonders of the world. One stone still remaining, archaeologists have found, measures 45 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. So those are the kind of stones that were there. Wealthy people donated gifts of gold. They gave sculptures. They gave plaques. Herod had donated a golden vine with clusters of gold grapes nearly six foot tall. And the gifts were displayed on the walls and suspended in the portico. And the disciples couldn't help themselves. Some of them were Galilean fishermen. Others were tax collectors and other things. They were looking and going, golly, look at all this. That's about the worship of Yahweh. And it appears what Jesus was thinking was, yeah, but the glory's not here, not in that building. I'm here. The Word has become flesh and tented, tabernacled among you, and you get to behold the glory of God. When he had his great transfiguration, John and James and Peter got to see Jesus in all his glory. In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, I'm looking so forward to coming back and once again reclaiming and sharing the glory I did with you before the foundation of the world, dear Father. The glory had come. It had been rejected. He was going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But if they had, they'd have got to be children of God. And so Jesus was so concerned when he was there. Now in chapter 19, Jesus had already told them the city would be destroyed. That's Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. Now he said not one stone will be left upon another. Well, that obviously led to questions from the disciples. They're like, wait a second. Jesus. Our people's focus is so on this temple... Uh, and we, by it we have come and been taught to worship God, and, and you say it's not even going to be here? My goodness. By the way, Malachi had ended his book one chapter before he ends by saying, the Lord will come to his temple. And Ezekiel 44 had said that the final temple will have God's glory return to it. And here was Jesus wanting to do that right then, and yet being rejected by the people. They ask, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now, Matthew's gospel makes clear that the second question was about the end of the age and his return. So both things are together here. Well, in verses 8 through 11, Jesus first talks about birth pains. Birth pains will increase as Christ's return grows closer. Now, I say birth pains, that is borrowed from Matthew, so we know Jesus said it, Luke just didn't put it in here, but we want to get that phrase in there because of what it represents. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But all of the things mentioned in verses 8 through 11 correspond to things stated in the seal judgments when the tribulation begins over in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 to 19, John, who didn't write anything about the tribulation time in the Gospels, all of a sudden does 13 chapters worth when God meets with him and has him put those things out out there. And they also describe though things that have been increasing in frequency from the first century until now. So what does verse 8 speak about? We're in Luke chapter 21. Verse 8 speaks of false Christ and false religious statements. And whether it's Muhammad who said everything you know about God, everything you know about Allah now comes through me and he got back to the worst sort of legalism and where you can't really even have relationship with God. Joseph Smith did a similar thing, the founder of the Mormon Church uh, and they pointed to a false way, made false, gave false information about God. Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventist, said there'd be a time when the world would come back and of course Christ didn't come back at that time, rendering them as false prophets, false teachers themselves. And the world has been filled with those ever since the time of Christ who have m- given false information out. I love this fascinating video you can see of Gary Habermas from Liberty and there's this fellow talking about Krishna and how some of the pagan gods also have resurrected direction stories and some of you have seen this but Gary Habermas did the information and he said no no you can find that Krishna goes back to the time before Jesus walked on earth but you can only find references to Krishna having some kind of rising incident after Jesus rose from the dead and so some of the false religions went out there and said "Ooh, nothing beats the reality of Christ rising from the dead we'll add that into our story as well And you can't find documentation of that preceding the time Christ was on earth, which is pretty cool. So, false Christ... He said, don't be deceived. Verses 9 and 10 speak of wars and commotions. And boy, the world has had some doozies, and the threat of war is constantly in the air. And so we live in a world wracked by sin, racked by pride and selfishness, and many times war, uh, and many times in our country's past we've had to be part of a just war where we've had to stop a Hitler or an aggression from this or that and uh, the world has war. The end is not yet, he says in verse 10. Well verse 11 speaks of regional earthquakes and we've had several recently. Haiti got hit by an earthquake recently. Oh no, it was Puerto Rico, wasn't it? Yeah, And uh, is dealing with the aftermath of that. It speaks of famines and pestilences like the worldwide coronavirus, the locust currently in Africa, the dry conditions in Australia. Verse 11 speaks of fearful sights and great heavenly signs. And the world has seen a lot happen. There's been times the meteors hit the world and there's going to be more during the time of the tribulation. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament make very clear that during that seven-year time of tribulation or trouble, before Christ returns, they will feature many more. Matthew 24.8, Mark 13.8 calls these things birth pains, birth pains. When a woman's contractions, birth pains, get closer together, what's happening? The baby's closer to getting here, right? When we see the increased frequency of these things, what does Jesus want us to think? Jesus is coming, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Here's how I like to think about these things. In the book of Genesis, after the worldwide flood, God said, I'm not going to destroy the world again that way, even though people are very sinful and they think about sin all the time. So even though there's a fiery judgment to come, he said, I'm not going to destroy the world again by a global flood. And he said, I'm going to give people a sign so every time they see that sign, what they're supposed to think about is God's mercy. He could judge us, but he's merciful giving us time to repent and turn to him. What's the sign of that? The rainbow. I know it's been co-opted by the gay rights and stuff, but God's purpose for the rainbow is to set the bow in the clouds and people think, huh, he's merciful. He's merciful, and there's time to repent. He's not going to judge in a global judgment of water again, and we're supposed to think about So what are we supposed to think about when we see these kind of things mentioned in verse 8 through 11? I think something very similar. I think every time one of them happens and we're aware of it, we're supposed to be sober-minded, you know, and we're supposed to say, hmm, one day Christ is coming to set up a kingdom when such things will never happen again maranatha lord jesus come and so we act to help those who are earthquake victims and who've been stricken by this and stricken by that and are, have famines in countries and stuff like that we act as christians to help in all those situations and yet we're also one of the things we do is we say Hmm, jesus said it would be that way until he returns the closer we are to the destruction of the world, the closer we are to the kingdom of the Savior. Maximus of Turin said that in the 5th century. I like that. The closer we are to the destruction of the world, the closer we are to the kingdom of the Savior. By the way, isn't it interesting that the way the Bible talks about things, these things is actually a little light these days compared to the doomsday scenarios of so many of the global scientists and things like that. We're not going to make it another decade, they say. And Christians go, we don't know if there's going to be another decade or not. What we do know is that these are the birth pains. These are telling us that, that the world's in trouble because of sin, and one day Christ is going to set it all right. Well, in verses 12 to 19, he goes over things that will be true from Christ's ascension onwards. So in verse 12, look what he says there. He says, before, but before all these things. So underline, before all these things. He goes right to what will happen before the temple will be destroyed. In verse 12, he speaks of persecution by religious and secular authority. So what happens? Christ dies for our sins, according to the scriptures. He rises from the dead. He ascends back to heaven. And they see him ascend to heaven, and he told them, the angels told them as they were looking around, they said, hey, he's going to come back. And remember what he said, he said, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's what they did. And as they did, they immediately faced um, harassment. They immediately faced arrest. They immediately faced the Sanhedrin and trouble with the Jewish authorities they immediately faced trouble again with the uh, Roman authorities too. There were riots and other things the book of Acts unfolds all of that and I think it's cool in Acts 5:41, it says they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So I don't know when the first earthquake was after Christ rose from the dead but I do know the persecution started immediately. He said before these things and those things that'll start it out he said from the time I rise and it really points out to uh, the rest of the time before he comes back there's going to be persecution but there wouldn't just be persecution from authorities it's going to be a lot more personal than that some of you have suffered dearly from family members you turned to Christ and they've mocked you ever since When I became a Christian, I had been one who had mocked Christians like Paul had imprisoned Christians. I had been one who had mocked Christians and immediately the friends that I thought I had turned on me and they were mocking me, right? And it was a very lonely start to the Christian life. And even at the church, in the youth group there, the kids didn't quite know what to do with me because I'd had a reputation as one who would mercilessly mock them, and then I was one of them, and they didn't want to put themselves through that. So I was kind of on an island when I first came to Christ, apart from the young man my age that would disciple me, and those on the youth pastor, et cetera, and others that were showing an interest in me as time went along. Verses 16 through 18 speak of hatred and betrayal by family and friends, and for some, martyrdom. Some of you will be killed. That was true in the early days of Acts. As Stephen was killed for his faith, you don't get 10 chapters into the book of Acts before someone dies as a martyr. And last year, an average of eight Christians a day died for their faith around the world. 35 churches or Christian buildings were destroyed around the world last year, every day. That's the average. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says there, But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patient endurance, possess your souls. By your endurance, possess your souls. Now, since he's already spoken of death in verse 16, verses 18 and 19 can't mean that no one will be physically harmed because verse 16 just said they will. What it's a reference to is God's sovereignty, isn't it? That when God has you and God has world events... You can go through this life assured that nothing's going to surprise him. Nothing's going to catch him biting his fingernails. Lottie Moon, the missionary in China, said, I am immortal until my time comes. And uh, it won't catch God by surprise, right? We can witness with confidence. We can live the Christian life by confidence, knowing that there are no surprises with our God. I was really touched recently when, I believe it was Gary Reynolds, told me about something Craig Gilreath said in his class uh, before he died of cancer, and he said, before cancer came my way, it had to cross God's desk. That's the way a strong believer thinks, right? That God is in control, and even when... I've made sinful decisions that mess me up. Others have made sinful decisions that mess me up. Or because of just sin in the world, bad things happen. There's consequences to sin in this world, including nobody having a perfect body now. And somehow each and every one of us is going to die at some point, And there's going to be wars and the other things. We're confident that God has it all under control and is moving things toward his beautiful purposes. That's why in Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's the meaning for us, that God's got this. God's got this, and you need to know that when you're under the gun and you're facing difficult things that God is in control. Now, there will be another meaning for the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are raised up during the time of the tribulation. We are told in Revelation 9 that those witnesses, they won't be able to have harm done to them. So as they witness and win people from the nations to the Lord they will continue to be okay during and protected during their time, which is pretty cool to think about those two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and then probably, and then the 144,000 during that time. Well, in verses 20 through 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70. Look again at verses 20 through 22. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains, let those who are in her midst depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. The rejection by that generation of their Messiah would mean no temple for a long time, fulfilling both Jesus' words and the words of prophets like Jeremiah." Hosea 3, 4 and 5 says it like this. For the children of Israel will abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So there was judgment then and there will be the days of Jacob's trouble the tribulation, seven years like Daniel talked about, coming to come. And we'll look at it from that perspective next week. But look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing in those days! There will be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That happened in AD 70. In A.D. 70, the Jewish historian Josephus records so much of it. From 66 A.D. to 70 A.D., the Jews revolted against their Roman occupiers. That could not stand, so Roman General Titus, later Emperor Titus, Roman General Titus was sent and his troops surrounded the city. And as the Romans crushed the revolt in the outlying areas around Jerusalem, refugees said, well, Jerusalem's got those nice walls, so we'll go in there. So refugees actually flooded into Jerusalem. If they had listened to Jesus, they would have run for the hills instead during that time, and some did, fleeing to the city of Pella and surviving. Inside, there was a scarcity of resources, but they did have enough to last three or four years, except they started infighting inside those walls of protection they started infighting with each other and so they squandered resources and made a mess of themselves and famine came quickly supplies couldn't get in the city was starved during the extended blockage of the city nursing mothers couldn't give milk because they were starving and other mothers actually ate their children Josephus documents People died like flies, the dead were thrown over the walls. And in May of AD 70, after this extended siege, Titus' troops came through the outer wall and captured the fortress of Antonia that was used for the troops and Herod in his days. The Romans broke into the rest of the city by August, they leveled it. One million Jews died, 100,000 Jews were carried away captive and sold on the slave markets of the Roman Empire throughout the Roman Empire. Titus told his soldiers initially not to destroy the temple, but one soldier didn't listen, and with anti-Semitic rage and potentially a whole lot of alcohol also, he started a fire that they could not put out. All the treasure in the temple was looted by the Romans. They toppled the stones of the temple into lower areas, and Jesus' prophecy had been fulfilled. By the way, do you know what European landmark celebrates from a Roman perspective, the uh, destruction of Jerusalem? the arch of Titus in Rome Italy what are these times of the Gentiles that's from Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in 586 BC to the second coming of Christ described in Revelation 20 during the entire time Gentiles have either dominated or threatened Jerusalem and there's been no temple let alone glory at the temple he had come to his own his own had received him not they'd missed their moment of glory But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Israel's back in the land today because of the help of many Gentile friends, but it's not yet what it will be. And all around it are people who wish to do it harm. Many of its own leaders are more secular in approach than fervently serving the Lord and seeking their Messiah. And we're going to start back next week by looking at that future desecration of the temple under the Antichrist, but the glory that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is going to return and set up his kingdom, and there will be glory. There will be a temple, there will be glory in it one day again. So like Daniel before him, Jesus spoke of a near and far desecration of the temple. For those that were here on Sunday nights, or those who were not rather, we saw that Daniel gave prophecies of the end times, Antichrist, and his desecration of the temple, Daniel 9 talks about, but he also laid out a history in Daniel 8 and 11 of a time when a little a Antichrist, it wound up being Antiochus Ephanes, himself desecrated the temple back in the 160s of B.C. And the same thing happens in the Gospels. When Jesus gives his Olivet Discourse, he talks about the near destruction, AD 70, but it also factors in. The very next verse 25, he begins talking about that middle point of the time of trouble to come, the tribulation that the prophet spoke of, that Jesus lays out, and so does the book of Revelation and all that will come, and we'll talk about it. We may say a few words next week also about this so-called deal of the century from last week that President Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu were part of. So, let's bring it home. Jesus' commands in light of what's coming... Remember in verse 8, what did he say? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by false leaders. I like how in 1 Thessalonians, Paul write and said, don't be ignorant. We don't want you to be ignorant, brother. Uh, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you, when God's people are in God's word, it's harder for them to be ignorant and it's harder for them to then be deceived keep studying your Bible brothers and sisters uh... you won't be deceived by false leaders you'll see through them easily if you're in the word antichrist teaching and leading is happening everywhere around us and it affects everything. There is a form of religion without the power thereof. Many of America's churches are apostate churches. They don't preach the word, they say things that are antichrist against the word. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived when one say they're Christians and run for office but reject clear teachings of God's Word on human sexuality and other matters. That teaching is all around us and has a form of religion to it. It's affected Richmond, it's affected Washington, it's affected Hollywood and comes at us all the time. Christians need to know their truth and reject what's false. Don't be ignorant, don't be deceived. You don't have to be deceived. Secondly, don't be frightened by awesome events. We saw that in verses 9 through 11. He says, don't be afraid, don't be frightened. I think about a couple hundred years ago there was a big earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal and the form of religion but not the power thereof Christians, quote-unquote Christians in Europe said well I can't see why something that big and bad would happen and, and God still love everybody so uh, it was a great impetus for atheism during those years as people said we need to turn away. Same thing happened in World War I. There was a big war and Jesus had said that sort of thing would happen and yet people use that as an excuse to turn from him. Jesus told us these are the things that happen in a fallen world that's not been put right yet. If you go to Romans 8, and I've given you the passage there I think in your notes, well let's just turn there now because it clearly says that this world is groaning waiting for its own redemption that when Jesus acts to redeem the rest of creation. His blood is purchased, his ability to come back and take control, and he will one day. Look at verse 18, Romans chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation "...eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs... Together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's a great future coming for us and new bodies on a new earth. There's a great body coming for this earth when it gets renewed. Let's look at one more passage that says that before we move on. 2 Peter. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. In the midst of all those that proclaim, Oh no, because of this or that we've got 10 years or left less left and then it's over and that's it. Oh no, no more us. The Bible tells us, yes, there's an end coming and after the end a glorious beginning for those who by faith get in on it second Peter chapter 3 verses 10 to 13 but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up therefore since all these things will be dissolved what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire the elements will melt with fervent heat oh no what happens after there's nothing look at verse 13 nevertheless We, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The end will be the beginning. And the Lord has told us that, so we don't need to be frightened. Verses 13-14, don't worry what you'll say when challenged, just witness. He says, hey you're going to be serving God, you're going to be seeking Him. Some of you are going to be arrested and you're going to be put on trial. Some of you will die and they're going to say, why do you believe in Jesus? Your family members are going to say, why do you believe in Jesus? Don't spend your time sweating over how you'll answer. If you love God, you've been seeking Him, you've been in the Word, the words will flow and it will be natural rather than inauthentic during that time. And so it's been for 2,000 years. Mark's gospel lets us know the Holy Spirit will help us in those moments. And so don't be silent in those moments. Take those opportunities. The things that are hard become opportunities to share, and the Lord will help you in those moments. And so believe him in that. And then finally, in verses 17 through 19, don't have a victim mindset. You're an overcomer. We saw that last week with Daniel Ritchie. By your patience, possess your souls. Be the overcomer your faith has made you be. There's so many people looking around and they're pessimistic, but the scriptures don't present it that way. They say, hey, God's in control. My faith is in him. He'll take care of it all. And so I am an overcomer. And every one of the churches, the words of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, end with the promise that the overcomers will receive this and will receive that in the future. 1 John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Bow your heads, please.